Welcome to the UK Consult. This podcast is our occasional ramble through all things to do with citizen engagement and public participation in the UK. It is the home of public participation goodness, with a particular focus on good practice examples of online engagement and special guests and features from around the globe. Hello and welcome to the UK Consult, our occasional ramble through all things to do with citizen experience, community engagement, public consultation, citizen participation, you name it, all those words. And it's been a little while since we did our last update, so apologies to our thousands, hundreds of thousands of listeners out there, but we are back. And as promised, we have a special guest. Um, Yes. Yes, welcome, Caitlin Hafferty. How are you? What's your name and where do you come from? Hi, yes, I'm, I'm Caitlin Hafferty, as you have just said. Uh, thank you. And I come from the University of Oxford, where I'm studying. Oh, gosh, I'm not studying anymore. I submitted my PhD two days ago and still in this yeah. kind of I'm studying mindset. But now I started a job two months ago um, at Oxford and I'm doing a postdoc in looking at the governance and participation of nature recovery and nature-based solutions. Wow. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, all about um, environmental restoration and nature yeah. resources. And that's that so that is that an extension of your PhD or no, so relevant topic through participation, um, yeah. but separate, yeah, separate entity in itself uh completely um but my phd was in a, a relevant topic on digital engagement and institutionalizing engagement Wowzers. so how did you act, how did you get into digital engagement then what was how did that all happen uh it was actually right at the very start of the pandemic my phd started working with a collaborative partner to develop tools for doing best practice community engagement so very on the ground we were looking at mapping tools, different uh, tools and platforms that you can use either digitally and remotely or sort of digitally in a hybrid situation. Um, And then the pandemic hit and that was all sort of cancelled and we obviously weren't able to meet in person anymore. So I had to think very quickly what might be relevant and important to the people who might potentially um, use or benefit from the research that I was producing. So Digital engagement obviously was a huge question mark in a lot of people's heads at the time. Sort of this was, you know, uh, March, April 2020, a long time ago. I can't believe how quickly time's gone since then. (laughs) So I launched a really quick survey to sort of basically ask practitioners who were working in engagement and consultation spheres at the time, you know, what you're doing, what's the impact of the pandemic on your work? What digital tools and platforms are you using? What questions do you feel would be important to answer at this time? And loads of people said, you know, how inclusive are digital platforms? Are we still, are we leaving more people behind with the switch to online? How are power relations changing, for example, um, switching tools online? Are there any additional privacy and security concerns, et cetera, et cetera? So, yeah, my, my whole switch to digital engagement was very much informed by looking at what was important to other people who could potentially benefit from you know better understanding and answering these questions around the ethical and inclusivity questions around digital engagement 
And so and so that did that and that so that led on to your PhD, did it? Or yeah, that was that was the PhD changing at that time yeah. in response to these these questions. So it was very much yeah agile in responding to these issues. Yeah. At the time during the pandemic, all these big questions around um, digital engagement, what tools people were using. Um, so yeah, that's exactly what my PhD ended up exploring. Uh, and this almost sounds like a a bit of a silly question because we could probably talk all day about this but I'm told people don't listen to podcasts for that long so is that could you could you sort of summarize what what it was all about key learning points for our listeners yeah of course so key learning point number one was that you may have heard this lots of times before but there is no one size fits all when it comes to digital or any tools that matter for engagement so maybe a bit of a pushback on some digital first or digital by default narratives, because there really are some fundamental key factors that you can look at to help understand which tools and approaches are, are most um, effective to use in different situations. So yeah, number one, there's no one size fits all. Number two, any engagement process, regardless of the digital in person, needs to be institutionalized within the organizations that are responsible for carrying out that engagement process. So what that might look like is a bit of a shift of thinking towards towards methods and tools-based understandings of engagement, like, oh, we're going to use this tool and it's going to help us do best practice, towards what do we look like as an organisation or an institution that does engagement and, and it's really embedded in the work that we do. I see this quite a lot in, in the public sector, for example. The Scottish government, I think, have a big initiative towards institutionalising engagement at the moment, which is really interesting. So, yeah, two kind of key learnings there. That institutionalisation and that, does that sort of relate to the importance of culture change, people, yeah. process? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of my thesis, not only producing some sort of recommendations of effective digital engagement, taking a bit of a step back and also produce some key thinking points around what are the barriers and opportunities for institutionalising engagement, and that would be embedded as part of organisational culture. And often that does require a bit of a culture change, um, which obviously is a very slow and complicated process, might involve identifying needs for organisational learning over time. And I think I highlighted five key sort of points around this. And that included issues like resource and capacity, including available expertise and time. Also included questions around agency of, of staff carrying out engagement, particularly, you know, when this is situated in a much broader picture, um, often involving kind of litigation elements or various other kind of regulations and organisational rules as well as, as national regulations. So, yeah, mainly looking at engagement as a much bigger picture as, as part of this sort of organisational culture and what that might look like at a much larger scale even what would it look like if if the government had a bit of a top-down approach towards institutionalizing engagement as part of the work that you know the whole government did what yeah it's, like? it's it's government needs to be like government need of all different shapes and sizes needs to be more engaging and and buying buying the technology is only part of it you've got to have a mm. you've got to have a strategy you've got to do the organizational change stuff um, we, you know, that, that's a lot of the work that we do with our customers is around that is, is actually around the transformation side of things and 
you know, we don't, we don't, technology on its own doesn't, doesn't actually deliver the critical outcomes that you're looking for without the, the, the strategy and the, the, you know, the, the culture change as well. So yeah, that, I'm looking forward to looking at your dissertation uh, when it's, yeah. when it's publicly available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it is so important and, um, Yes, in terms of my things being publicly available, it takes ages. But what I am going to do in the meantime is disseminate findings in sort of a bit more digestible formats, yeah. it's free online. So whether that might look like blog posts or um, a guidebook or something like that, web page, um, yeah. I'm going to work on this over the next few few months. And obviously, it's very relevant to the work that I'm I'm doing at the moment um, at Oxford. So yes, but I think there's a there's a big kind of future and a big shift towards, as you say, a lot of this thinking going towards actually less about the methods and the tools, but the bigger picture of what would it look like if the whole organization or the whole, you know, government or, or department or anything engaged and was engaging and, and had this really embedded as part of the vision and, and the mission and the goals of, of what they were trying to achieve and, and really strengthening those links and also empowering staff to do this engagement because there's often a lot of conflict and risk around different situations, depending on the context that you're engaging in. But how can you really empower staff to sort of embrace and move move past those risks and have the skills to uh, conflict management, for example, and, and uh, all the support. And that just needs to be part of an organisational culture, right, with all the right resourcing and staffing and these steps to achieve what might be best practice in different situations. So when when you when you were when you were doing your work, did you get much chance to do sort of much sort of horizon scanning? And did you did it make you think about the challenges that people you know people working in citizen participation, what what they might face in the future? Is that was that part of it, or well, it doesn't have to be? But you, I'm yeah. sure you've got a view on that. Yeah, well, with the digital engagement, I think one really interesting thing there so for example I produced 10 key thinking points which sort of summarized some pros and cons for using digital tools and and what that might look like so with regards to inclusion or with regards to trust and how that can play out differently in digital entirely digital and remote environments compared to in person and when I was writing about that really made me think about the metaverse because for example, one of the factors that really strongly came out in my research was the fact that in digital and remote spaces, these very kind of inherent social interactions between people. So, for example, facial expressions, body language, all of these sort of more subliminal and very inherently human ways of being and behaving changed, obviously, in digital remote environments with impacts on the effectiveness of the engagement process. So it had a knock-on effect of, you know, how you could build trust with participants over time and all these other things to consider. Not necessarily always negative, there were always pros and cons on either side. And it made me think in the metaverse, you know, when, when these digital and in-person worlds are becoming so much more increasingly entwined, what's this going to look like? And, you know, if we're having engagement sessions in these entirely sort of virtual spaces, what might that look like there? You know, are we going to no longer have these uh, issues and considerations about doing things, this lack of having this in-person, person-to-person interaction? It's so Can amazing. we recreate it in virtual space? 
Yeah. It's, so, it's so incredible, isn't it? So I'm going to read this out. and I shared it with you earlier. The metaverse is anticipated to become the next generation of the internet. It's anticipated that at some point there will be a shift away from the current 2D use of the internet, webs websites and browsers, to a 3D metaverse internet. Now, I, I can't remember where I read that, but I wrote it down, put it in quotation marks, and was like, just like you, I was like, what does that even mean for, mm. for what we do? People, what it's a 3D online digital participation. What might what might that even look like? Are we all gonna walk, are we all gonna sort of like be talking to people? Are they gonna create personas of themselves that are like avatar based, for example? How does that work? How, that's yeah. so far removed from human interaction, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so actually, I do get on Instagram, I do get adverts from Meta, and. Yeah. That's what they show. They show these avatars interacting with each other in virtual spaces. And I think they're already papers sort of coming through. And I noticed a couple of papers in urban planning thinking about these incoming metaverses and what they mean for kind of engagement and urban planning and city planning. And just, I think it's, yeah, it's moving from this potential to this is a reality and this is coming. What's the impact going to be? Or how could we predict the issues? Because I can imagine a whole world of kind of ethical risks around maybe having things entirely virtual. I can also imagine this is probably going to be a technology that's going to start with big organisations, maybe using it for staff meetings and that sort of thing, rather than a technology that's going to be available to everyone immediately. Um, that's yeah. what happens, doesn't it? It starts somewhere. Um, and then it, and then people start to they they take the technology and they apply it to different settings. So I've I've no doubt in my mind that, that, that there will be like meta meta based public consultation. Not that far away, I don't think. No, no. And there's a very no. good reason why you know why why Mark Zuckerberg has really gone down the route of of meta and the metaverse because you know it's placing a bet. That that's the next version of the internet. So, yeah, who we say, who we say yeah. that's wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, you think of all the potential for. I think a lot of the engagement practitioners that I've spoken to have really emphasised the importance of having kind of gamified elements of, of yeah. digital engagement. I'm sure you know that with with Granicus. But think about what that might look like in a, in the metaverse. You know, unlimited potential of, you know, more kind of fun and playful aspects to engagement yeah. and much more yeah, in, uh, in many ways much more inclusive but potentially exclusive it's, it's always been the same hasn't it so yeah. you can imagine it being very like making it making things a much more inclusive but also there'll be some people that just don't want to participate that way but that's yeah. always the case isn't it yeah. I mean that makes me think then about the next thing that's as we gaze into the future is around artificial intelligence big data and 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 th those are the other two things that i will think will have a massive effect on citizen on, on the way we do engagement and i keep calling it citizen participation a lot more nowadays because there was a, the oecd paper on guidelines to citizen participation so kind of like following that mm. but it's like that the whole ai part of it and big data is that something that you worry about or think about? It is, yes. I think very broadly, there are some huge questions around the ethics 
use of AI, and I follow quite closely some work done by organisations like the Ada Lovelace Institute and the Alan Turing Institute, and they've got a great digital ethics department or group at Oxford as well. I'm looking at this work and there are some really big questions around digital ethics, particularly with regards to the COVID tracking app. I think a lot of work came out during that time. Um, and then kind of filtering it down to how these sort of ethical principles for using AI in responsible ways might, you know, the implications of that for participation and engagement. And I always think about digital platforms that collect a huge amount of data from members of the public about different developments and whatnot. And I think this is available or stored in whatever, maybe not publicly available, but maybe scrapable databases, and sometimes also filtered using AI, and also themes are produced from this data using AI. So you've got a lot of kind of automated, increasingly automated processes at various steps in the engagement process. So whether that's to like generate themes about what people think about development in their area or project, whether that's to edit and automatically kind of filter out words. So maybe swear words or something, you know, some kind of automated censoring of that. And I'm sure there's a lot of other ways that you can automate different steps. So like sentiment analysis and uh, yeah, probably unlimited potential more than I possibly know about. But I think, you know, what is, what's the danger of increasingly the power being with large organisations, large tech companies, even social media platforms, and the control that they might have and the power that they might have and the amount of data that they have as well. Definitely. And if that fall into the wrong hands or isn't regulated effectively, because I think there's a big question mark around the ethical use of data and data driven tools in general, you know, not just AI. I think even bigger questions around AI. And there's a whole thing around location based data as well. And I think there's the Locust Charter, which has been developed relatively recently, which is trying to set up some sort of international standards and guidelines around the ethical and responsible use of location data. And I think similar for AI. But it's a huge yeah. question, you know, and how can not only we develop these regulations and guidelines, but how can we enforce them? Because it's all very well having the guidelines, but unless there's some kind of system of evaluating progress against these regulations and being able to enforce them at different levels and scales of governance, that's possibly lacking as well at, at the moment. So, yeah, I think it's a huge, probably going to be one of the most important questions going forwards. Yeah, and you've, you know, you've really made me think about the importance of trust and security in all of that as well. So, like, you know, Granicus as a company collects a lot of that, a lot of citizen engagement, citizen participation, citizen experience data. And that our whole, the whole thing around that is around trust and security. And we only work with government. And it made me think about, like, like we're, we're letting a lot of, unregulated comp not companies like the social media companies that's all that version of big tech we're letting them collect all that information without any sense of like you know democratic governance if you like if that what that yeah. about it 
so it's yeah. fast and, and also the out you know like the, the transparency around algorithms you know how when the more data that we collect which is which, which is conversational and qualitative the more transparency there needs to be around the algorithm that, that decides whether or not that comment is related to this or that or the other how it's mm. summarized Super, yeah. it's really nice. It's like, but the, all that reminds me of something else that I was going to mention to you. It was around, and, and we don't need to talk about Elon Musk, but I think the main <laughs> thing, what, what I was mainly interested in was, was that he kept, he, ha, he has been saying that he wants Twitter to be the public square of the internet. And, and, and then there was a piece in The Guardian written by Samantha Florian, I think. And, and it, she was, um, she said, well, we need to strongly consider what, what publicly controlled platforms look like and and by that i mean it's like can you have a big corporation big com- private corporation come along and say we are the public square of the internet or because I, I my feeling is no and and and, and that mm. is more the responsibility of like local local government to say we are the owners of the public square and and then they have the technology in place to hold those host those conversations or national government so I'm kind of answering my own question because that's my view, but I'm more interested in your view. <laughs> I think I'd, um, yeah, I think I'd possibly agree with you there without knowing too much. I haven't really, I think lots of people are moving to this, uh, what's the other platform called that everyone's been moving to? Um, oh, yes, um, uh, I, I did it as well. I followed too. Yeah. I couldn't help it. Yeah. Mastodon. Mastodon, that's the one. Yes, yes. I think a lot of people have moved over, and I, th- I think that that's different. Maybe got publicly owned elements. I'm not sure. I need to, but yes, I just I, I do wonder. But with that, with it, with it operating in different spaces, and there's there's various different forums, I guess, that you can join in different. Almost like when you're playing an online game, and you can join a different world, and then join different servers, and chat in specific rooms, and all sorts of things. I wonder for people in general, is that way too complicated? Right, <laughs> Do like, you need too complicated. a platform yeah. that's, yeah. <laughs> I did it and I was like, oh, my exactly that. My initial thoughts was way too complicated yeah. for, you know, for, for most people. So like I really had to persevere and almost felt like I needed a manual. You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, massively with you. Yeah. But so, I- when you do have these you know any big social media platform that's owned and controlled and these big questions around you know just this huge immense power that these tech companies have it really has just sort of placed a bit of a spotlight on that because twitter is now completely down to well it always has been but increasingly it seems to be very visibly down to the whims of one person because I think as well Elon Musk is very vocal about you know he's done this uh, poll on whether or not to bring Trump back and is very vocal himself on social media (laughs) whether that's part of his business strategy I do not know Um, but I think it's yeah it's just added a whole other dimension to it but the whole ethic AI big data metaverse we're only really just getting used to online participation Mm, exactly um, you think a couple of years ago we weren't even using zoom and teams it was still a yeah. bit novel and then these things are on the horizon already 
Um, yeah, and I think it's it's a bit of a danger that when these, you know, this very fast pace, kind of move fast, break things, solve it later on approach can be quite dangerous in this respect because you should, you know, we do need to have a more proactive approach. And that's a big kind of thing that my PhD thesis as well as a core message in there, yeah. you know, needs a more proactive approach. You need to understand these ethical risks before they happen. And there are ways to do that, fortunately. But again, that takes, you know, going back to this institutionalizing and embedding engagement thing, you know, these real principles comes back to that because it needs to be properly resourced and needs to, you know, the staff responsible for carrying it out really need to be empowered to do it themselves and have the right support and the right resources available. That's right. And that needs to be supported from the top down. So it all kind of ties in to each other. I think as well with this increased AI and, and digitizing of, and new technologies completely, you know, continuously emerging. I think we forget that, you know, we've had digital around for decades now. But whose responsibility is it as well? Whose responsibility is it? Is it the software engineers? Is it the government? Is it, you know, the people who are at the top of organizations like the CEOs and CTOs? Whose responsibility is it to ensure that technology is being used in the most ethical and responsible way? Because that's a huge question. I feel like that's a question that's not always clear cut. Yeah. Um, and in digital transformation, they often talk about the importance of leading from the top through the middle. Mm. Um, that, you know, that may be part of it. Yeah, role of intermediaries. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've we've nearly got we've nearly hit our time limit, I think. What we always do on the podcast is have a bit of a shout out to some of our recent customers out there. So this week, this time it's not week because it's been a little while since we last did the last po- podcast, but this time around, it's a big shout out to Transport for Wales. We've recently launched their um, online um, platform. So, and that is called what is that called? have your say transport for Wales so well done and then another one is Solihull Council have launched their site Your Voice Solihull so that's really good well done welcome to the world of online citizen participation we hope you've been listening to some of the things Caitlin and I have been talking about and hopefully they're helpful the other one I was just going to quickly mention and is is Your Say Torbay have had a discussion forum which links to what we've been talking about around the public, about who you know, about online public spaces, and their their subject was was really controversial, I think, by the number of response um, comments. So it was, um, please let us know what the impact would be um, about a road closure, Brixham Road, being closed between January and April 2023. So this is getting down to the micro detail of citizen online citizen participation. One thousand six hundred and fifty eight comments on their discussion thread real sort of like high volume active citizen participation people exchanging their views and opinions on a very local very detailed and probably controversial topic well done you'll say Torbay for for being brave and having that discussion online and I think you're probably a record breaker in terms of that the, the volume of comments on your on your um on your discussion forum so there you go three shouts out big thank you Caitlin, for coming on the podcast. I'm actually looking forward to listening to this again because I think we covered some fascinating subjects. So thank you very much. 
yeah, thank you very much for having me on. And yeah, keep an eye out for, uh, as I say, going to be disseminating some of these kind of key considerations for digital engagement and how to, these pros and cons that came out from uh, all these amazing practitioners that I spoke to. So uh, yes, I'm, I'm looking actually <laughs> disseminate these in a way that's a bit more digestible than a 400 page thesis. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I keep saying I'm going to read the thesis, so I have to now. Good luck. Yeah, you want to get like a really, you know, big whiskey or something and a big <laughs> bowl of biscuits and sit there for a good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I may well do exactly that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until the next time. Thank you for tuning in to the UK Consult. Join us for future conversations each week as we continue to explore the tremendous, meaningful and ever-evolving world of digital consultation and community engagement. You can view additional educational resources at bangthetable.com.